People are complicated. <laughs> People are complicated. Do you know anyone who always does what you expect? People are made in the image of God, so people are wonderfully creative and honorable, but people are also fallen in sin, and so people are wonderfully or woefully, I should say, corrupt and horrible. People are complicated. Even those of us with faith in Jesus don't always walk according to our faith in Jesus. Followers of Jesus can be faithful and faithless on the same day, in the same hour, within the same worship service. We struggle, we waffle between faithful fullness and faithlessness. We're like the father of the boy with an unclean spirit Jesus ministers to in the Gospels. Father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever pray that way? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Wait, wait, that's a, that's a contradiction, right? How can you believe and have unbelief? I don't know, you tell me. You have it every day. I believe. Help my unbelief. He cries. And I resonate so much with this father. His life, his words summarize much of my Christian life. I think his words are also summarized nicely by a Cademan's call song from 1999 called Shifting Sand. Maybe you haven't heard it. It goes like this. Sometimes I believe all the lies so that I can do things I should despise. Every day I'm swayed by whatever's on my mind. I hear it all depends on my faith, so I'm feeling precarious. The only problem I have with these mysteries is they're so mysterious. Like a consumer, I've been thinking, if I, could, if I could just get a bit more, more than my 15 minutes of faith, then I'd be secure. I've begged you for some proof, for my Thomas eyes to see. A slithering staff, a leprous hand, and lions resting lazily. A glimpse of your backside glory, this soaked altar going ablaze. But you know I've seen so much. And I've explained it away. My faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I stand on grace. Do you ever feel that way? Does that describe you, maybe even today, or this week, or this month, or this decade? My faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I will stand on grace. Our faith often feels like shifting sand, changed by every changing circumstance. I wonder if you've ever felt so close to God 
in the morning that you could just weep and sing for joy. And then maybe by that evening, you wonder if He even exists. You wonder if, you wonder if He even loves you. And how on earth could He love someone like you? Our faith is like shifting sand. Changed by every wave. Thankfully, there's a foundation that we can build our lives on that will hold our houses up. If our lives depended on our faith, we'd be in trouble, amen? But there is a foundation that we can build our lives on that will hold our houses up. That foundation is God's grace. My faith is like shifting sand, so I stand on grace. God's grace is a good foundation to build your life on because it won't shift or move ever, ever. God won't ever come to you and say, you know that grace I gave you? I would like it back now. Or, you know that grace I gave you? Well, you haven't lived up to it, so you don't get to taste it anymore. That will never happen. God's grace doesn't move or shift. It's not dependent or conditional. It's free and it forever belongs to those who belong to God. It'll never slide out from under your feet like sand on the beach when waves come in. God's grace is what keeps us in the faith. It's not our faith that keeps us in God's grace. Let me say that again because if you get this truth, I think it will change your life. God's grace is what keeps us in the faith. It's not our faith that keeps us in God's grace. This is liberating news for the unrighteous and the self-righteous. For those who think that they could never, ever have love and favor from God. And for those who think that they deserve it. This is liberating news that God's grace is not dependent on our faith. God's grace is for people like us with faith like shifting sand. This back and forthness of faith is way more normal than many of us may realize or care to admit. Who among us hasn't struggled with unbelief and doubt? You don't have to raise your hand. But I'm pretty sure it's all of us. By the way, there's a great book. It's in our church library. Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith by Barnabas Piper. Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith by Barnabas Piper. Grab it. It's in the church library if you want to dig into this more. We all struggle with doubt. We all struggle with unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we get to the Bible, and one of the good gifts of God to us in the Bible is its realism. All of its main characters have this waffling faith. The Bible, I think one of the uh, greatest defense for its trustworthiness is its realism. In other words, it, it doesn't sugarcoat or glamorize its main characters. It tells us exactly what these main characters did and what kind of people they were. It tells us the truth about them. Last week in Genesis 12, 
we saw that Abraham, one of the most influential figures in world history, I think Mason said top five, based on your research. Okay, so one of the most influential figures in the world. He was so cowardly that he told his wife to lie and tell Pharaoh she was his sister so that he wouldn't die. Why? Because he failed to believe the promises God had literally just given him the first three verses. As Mason helpfully pointed out, it's instructive for us that Moses introduces Abraham in chapter 12 to the people of Israel and to us. First with those promises, verses 1 through 3, promises from God. And then immediately after those promises, there's two stories. The first is verses 4 through 9. It's about Abram's faith and obedience. And then the second story, verses 10 through 20, is about his unbelief and cowardice. So promises, faith, unbelief. Does it sound familiar? To like your whole life, <laughs> promises, faith, unbelief. This is Abraham. This is such good news for us. I'm so glad this is in the Bible. Thank you, Mason, for pointing this out. Seriously, think about it. Even Abraham, the father of our faith, struggled to believe the promises of God. Abraham struggled to do what was right. He was prone to self-preservation. He failed to care for the the most vulnerable people around him in, in the moment that it counted. This is Abram, the father of our faith. This is super encouraging. This is super encouraging. Why? Because we're just like him. We're just like him. Like Abram, we bounce between faithfulness and faithlessness. Our faith is like shifting sand. Now, if we didn't know the end of the story... After reading what happened at the end of chapter 12 with Abram in Egypt, we may wonder, well, what kind of guy is this? Maybe you read the Bible for the first time. You're like, whoa, this guy is jacked up. He literally just had his wife sold into or given into Pharaoh's harem, more or less. Who is this guy? So if the story ended there, we would be left highly discouraged. In Egypt, Abram was a liar and a coward. But then... By God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, Moses keeps writing. In Genesis 13, we're going to learn that Abram, like every true follower of God, knows where to go after he's blown it. Abram blows it in Egypt. And in chapter 13, instead of sulking away in self-pity, he goes back to the God who saved him. When his faith faltered, he goes back to grace. This chapter is going to show us that God's grace did indeed have a life-changing effect on Abram. Now here's our plan for this morning. We're going to read a few verses and then talk about them. Read a few more and then talk about them. Sound good? Thank you. All right. That's how creative I got this week. So here we go. Verses 1 through 4. What? happens right after Abram leaves Egypt. Verses 1 through 4. 13, 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. 
And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. After Abram's faith faltered, he runs where? Back to God. This is a spiritual pilgrimage of sorts. Abram goes back to where he previously worshipped God between Bethel and Ai. And he did what he had previously done there. It says he called upon the name of the Lord. Look at chapter 12, verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, or Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Then he goes to Egypt because of the famine, is cowardly and faithless. And then after that, verse 4 says plainly, he comes to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So after blowing it in Egypt, where does Abram go? He goes back to God. He goes to a place of worship. He goes to call upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't run away from his God. He runs back towards him. I wonder, brothers and sisters, when your faith falters, which direction are you prone to run? Back towards your God? Or kind of away from him in hiding? Do you move away from God or towards God? And that's a hard question because sometimes we, we don't know. We, we don't really know what we're doing or why we're doing it. Here's, I think, maybe an indication that when our faith has faltered, that we are moving away from our God instead of towards Him. If, if we are prone to glut ourselves on food or alcohol or video games or media or ministry or busyness, then we may be running away from something and towards something that is not God. So just watch the patterns of your life in a hard season, in a difficult season, when you've blown it, when everything is spinning out of control. What starts to consume your time and affection and attention? And by the way, everything I just listed is actually good in and of itself. Video games, I don't know. <laughs> the point is, do you glut yourself? Are you, just, are you just trying hard to not think about what's actually going on? You're kind of just retreating into a, a world of consumption rather than just falling before God and saying, please help me. Going back to the altar, so to speak, calling upon the name of the Lord. I love the way Dane Ortland ends his book, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you have read it. Ortland, at the very, very end, he says, the Christian life boils down to two steps. One, go to Jesus. Two, see number one. Whatever is crumbling, he says, all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. Jesus' heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life, he says, where you feel most defeated 
He is there. He lives there, right there. And his heart is for you, not on the other side of it, but in that darkness. And his heart is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. And then Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan from the uh, 1600s, says, If you knew his heart, you would. If you knew Jesus' heart, you would run to him. Go to him and keep going to him. Like Abram, when you blow it in Egypt, get up, get on your donkey and go back to Bethel, to the altar, and call upon the name of the Lord. That's what Abram does. Now, this text goes on to tell us that Abram's wealth and his nephew Lot's wealth starts causing some friction in the family. So look at verses 5 through 7. 5 through 7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. This is a clear example of how money does not solve all your problems. As they say, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> Write that down, you'll want to use that later. These guys are incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. Tents, herds, gold, silver. I know, I said, I know what we all do. We all think if I could just get that, then things would kind of level out. Conflict would dis disappear, strife would end. <laughs> That's not true. It's just simply not true. Abram and Lot's affluence is creating strife amongst their employees, the herdsmen. Their huge flocks put pressure on the shepherds to find water and pastures for their herds. The text also notes there at the end of verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. So Abram and Lot's herds weren't the only ones needing water and pasture. It's interesting, though, that the text says that the strife was between Lot and Abram's herdsmen, not between them and the other people in the land. It's sad that the people of God often have a harder time living with one another than with the people of the world. Immediately, after Abram had renewed his faith, worshipped God, called upon the name of the Lord, a test comes and it strikes him really close to home. And throughout Genesis, we're going to see the patriarchs have domestic disputes. And this, again, is encouraging for us because it tells us that it is actually normal for the people of God to face tests and trials at home. All through Genesis might just be you know, titled something like uh, the dysfunctional family of God. Drama follows these guys everywhere. But verses 8 and 9 are about to show us that Abram handled this drama, this test, with incredible wisdom and grace. Look at what happens. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. 
Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. God's grace made Abram an open-handed man. Are you open-handed? Are you open-handed? As the leader of the clan, he had every right to take whatever part of the land he wanted and said, hey, Lot, you, you're going to take that part because I'm getting this part. But in humility, Abram considered Lot as more important than himself, as more significant than, than himself. Abram didn't look only to his own interests, but to the interests of Lot. A mark of the grace of God in a person's life is that you start to consider the people around you before yourself. Abram was magnanimous. That means noble in this dealing. He was unselfish and kind and generous. He didn't take what he could have taken. Like all great leaders, Abram was willing to make sacrifices for the good of others. On vacation last week, I read a biography of George Washington. You're like, nerd alert. That's okay, fine. That's right. I would argue we need to read more history, not less. Might help us figure out our way through the mess we're in as a country and as a culture. I'll preach that sermon one day, maybe. So it was fascinating as I read about Washington to learn about all the actions that he took that were uh, essentially unselfish, that served the public's interest more than his own. For example, he took a slower and less aggressive approach in the Revolutionary War when in his heart and mind, in his journals, he writes that he would have preferred to be more aggressive, and it's a good thing that he wasn't or we would have lost. But he took a slower, more patient approach. After the war was won, he laid down his sword, literally and symbolically, at Annapolis, Maryland, refusing to be king of the new nation. Later, after serving two terms as president, he refused to serve a third term. This was before there were term limits. He refused to, to serve a third term because he didn't want to be king of the new nation. Washington is revered in our nation's history because he didn't take what he could have taken. Like Abram, he took a more noble approach. And thus he's marked, rightfully so, as a great servant leader. What does Abram do? Strife breaks out amongst the herdsmen. Abram takes the approach of peacemaker. He says in verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me. He seeks to diffuse the situation, settle it peacefully. He says, Lot, if you want that side, I'll take this side. If you want this side, I'll take that side. You pick. In Egypt, Abram had done what was easy and expedient in order to avoid conflict. But here, he does what is hard but right. Isn't it much harder to give up your rights, so to speak, and let someone else choose or defer to someone else? It seems that Abram's meeting with God has changed his disposition. Do your meetings with God change your disposition? Peacemaking here and always involves an eagerness 
for peace. Let there be no strife, verse 8. Let there be no strife between me and you. I wonder, is this your attitude in conflict? Is this your attitude in conflict at home or at work or in the church? Let there be no strife. Not a minimizing of real conflict. Not an avoidance that's cowardly. But a desire for peace. This isn't the attitude of the world. Our culture thrives on rage and anger and conflict and division. And he said and she said. This is what sells so people on television learn to do it, do it really well. The world wants to stir things up. It doesn't want peace. But this is not the way of Christ. This is not the way of His followers. It's really interesting that Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are upset with him. They think he's trying to be some super apostle and, and all this. And so they're upset with Paul. And this is what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 11, My heart is wide open to you. My heart is wide open to you. And then he asked them in chapter 7, Make room in your hearts for me. My heart is wide open to you. Make room in your hearts for me. I wonder again, is this your posture in conflict? When things go sideways, is this your heart? My heart is open to you. Or are you more grinchy? Like, I'm not going to give you what you want ever, 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 and I'm not going to forget what you've done or said ever. I'm going to keep bringing it up and rehashing it every time some, something goes bad. No, no, Paul's heart is, man, I want to make this work out. My heart is open to you. I'm moving towards you with an open heart instead of standing back with folded arms waiting for you to move towards me. What I've learned in my very short time as a pastor is that when people want to work through conflict, they usually do. When people want to work through conflict, they usually do. What does that mean? It means that if your heart is open to the other person and their heart is open to you, we can work stuff out. We can get places. But people with closed hearts and no desire for peace will remain in strife and continually be questioning the motives of others, whether evidence demands it or not. Let there be no strife between me and you. This attitude of peace and generosity comes to characterize Abraham. Next week in chapter 14, we're going to see that he refuses to take spoils from war that don't belong to him. He's open-handed. He's generous. Parents, parents, listen. Kids will forget most of what you say. <laughs> Amen. Kids will forget most of what you say. But they'll remember what kind of person you are. And the kind of person that we are in conflict says a great deal about the kind of person we are. Abram's attitude apparently rubbed off on his son Isaac. Later in Genesis, Isaac responds in a similar way when his servants dig wells, um, only to have those wells claimed by Abimelech. And instead of fighting and arguing and demanding rights, Isaac says, fine, we'll go over here. We'll dig our wells over here. 
Our kids will remember what kind of people we are, even if they forget most of what we say. Let that be a lesson to us parents. May we model for our kids an open-handedness towards our spouse. Husbands, you're called to take the lead in this. You're like, well, it's not my fault. That's true sometimes, no doubt. Our pastor used to say, the mature person is the one who apologizes first. So I'm always like quick to do it first. <laughs> Just kidding. Even if I don't mean it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but seriously. A humble, open-handed generosity towards our spouse means we're going to move towards them with a gentleness and a care and a, an open heart, a desire to meet them where they are and figure it out. Not demanding rights, not not bringing up a laundry list of offenses, but with an open heart that wants to be a peacemaker. It'll bless your marriage, it'll bless your kids, it'll bless your church, it'll bless your workplace. Blessed, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So Abram refuses to take whatever land he wants. He's showing us if you think about it, he's showing us that he's prepared to give up part of the promised land. This land that God had just promised to him in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. He's prepared to sacrifice because of his faith. His faith, created by grace, was open-handed and ready to sacrifice. The common sense thing for him to do would be to take the fertile land, take the good land. But doing what makes sense isn't the same as doing what God wants us to do. Abram's faith wavered in Egypt, and it'll waver again. We'll see that in the chapters to come. But here in chapter 13, he's willing to give up some of the promised land because he believes that God is true to his word, so he's prepared, he's prepared to sacrifice what's been promised to him, saying, Lot, you choose, because I believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. This is what's going to happen in chapter 22 again, just when God says, hey, that one son you have, Abram, remember that one son, Isaac? I want him. And Abram again is prepared to give up what's been promised to him because he believes God. He believes God's promises. Now the Israelites hearing this from Moses for the first time would have been absolutely shocked because Lot... You might remember Lot is the father of their enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So the Israelites are listening to this narrative thinking, don't do it, Abram, don't do it. Don't give the land to, to uh, Lot. Those people are trying to kill us. What are you thinking? But interestingly, as we're going to see now in verses, the, ver the following verses, we're going to see that Lot decides to go to the east and Abram gets to the land of Canaan, the promised land, so God's promise is secure. Nothing is going to stop the promises of God in Abram's life. Nothing, nothing, brothers and sisters, is going to stop the promises of God in your life. Nothing. So, let's get into verses 10 through 13. We see what Lot does. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and chose the Jordan Valley. He saw that the, the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot doesn't defer to Abram. Abram had deferred to Lot. Lot doesn't refer, uh, defer to Abram. Lot chooses the best land. He chooses the Jordan Valley. He chooses the well-irrigated and lush land. He chose the best for himself. It's so fertile. The land is so fertile that Moses compares it to the Garden of Eden and the land of Egypt. This might remind us of things we've seen already in Genesis. Remember when Eve in chapter 3, she saw that the fruit was good and then she took it? Then in chapter 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, and then they took them as wives. So Lot sees something beautiful, and he takes it. Teaching us that just because something looks good to our eyes doesn't mean that it will be good for our souls. And the mention here in chapter 13, verse 10 of Zoar the direction of Zoar might appear to be an insignificant detail, but it lets us know that Moses wants us to connect this, what's happening here, with what will happen with Lot later, because this place called Zoar, it's on the south end of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, this place is where Lot, Lot flees to when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So Moses is kind of alerting his readers to the fact that, hey, this place where Lot is going may look good now, but it's not always going to look good. There's a great contrast between what Lot sees initially and what will happen eventually. First impressions are not always reliable. As one commentator says, Lot chooses an area that is materially prosperous, yet morally degraded. Verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot chose where to live based on what his eyes could see. He saw a land of great material wealth, but he either didn't see, didn't care to see, or didn't look long enough to see that that land was in a severe famine spiritually. This land, Moses alerts us to to this detail, chapter uh, verse 10, This land is going to soon be consumed by fire. Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle preached a sermon on Lot back in the 1800s. It's in his book, Holiness. You can find it there. Ryle says that this wrong choice early in Lot's life was the cause of so much of his ruin later in life. He applies this story to several areas of life that are still super relevant for today. Ryle says that we should remember Lot's choice when we're considering where we'll live. Will we worry about price and location more than whether the gospel is preached within an easy distance, he says. He asks us to consider, is Christ crucified within the reach of your door? Is there a real man of God near who will watch over your soul? Ryle then goes on to say that we should remember Lot when we're choosing a job. Will we worry more about the salary or our soul and our Sundays? He asks, will you have your Sundays free and be able to have one day of the week free for your spiritual business? Proverbs tells us not to make decisions based primarily on money. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. In other words, 
it's super wise to not try to make as much money as you possibly can. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Of course, Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? We shouldn't make our decisions based primarily on money. Ryle, Ryle goes on to say that we should remember Lot when we choose a husband or a wife. He says, quote, Think of your soul, your immortal soul. Will it be helped upwards or dragged downwards by the union you are planning? Will it be made more heavenly or more earthly, drawn nearer to Christ or to the world? Will you care more about their looks or their soul? By God's grace, I want to say publicly, I'm so thankful for this lady right here. Susie, didn't plan to say this. Here we go. Last week on our anniversary trip, I said, Susie, I truly wouldn't be anywhere close to who I am apart from you. God's grace has flowed through her to me in profoundly life-changing ways. Your patience and kindness, your wisdom and correction, encouragement and prayer. Brothers and sisters, if you're not yet married, who you married has amazingly profound consequences. As Ryle says, you will either be helped upwards or dragged downwards by the union you are planning. Made more heavenly or more earthly, drawn nearer to Christ or to the world. Ryle says that Lot chose by sight, not by faith. Quote, he asked no counsel of God to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not of eternity. He thought of his worldly profit, not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life. He forgot the solemn business of the life to come. This was a bad beginning. End quote. If you're young-ish, and I'm not going to define that for you. I'm going to let you just I'm going to let you just be postmodern and define that for yourself. If, if you're young-ish, you're just getting your start in life, remember Lot's choice. His choice early in life had massive consequences later in his life. The lesson, of course, is things are not always as they appear. Or as the old song says, everything that glitters is not gold. One of the smartest things you can do, brothers and sisters, is to surround yourself with older, wiser, godly counselors. There is safety for you in many counselors. And so many in this room have done that. And it's a beautiful thing to watch and behold. You, you've, you've come to a pastor or a friend in the church for help in thinking through a big decision, whether it's a relationship or a job or a move or a school or whatever, a conflict. You're seeking counsel and your life has borne good fruit through that. It amazes me how many friends I've seen who've, who've made massive decisions, it appears without talking to anyone, and then wonder why things are so hard.
The church is a family with age diversity for a reason. We need each other's counsel and encouragement. So older members, and I'm going to let you define that, okay? Older members actively seek out our younger members, offering them the wisdom that you've gleaned from the life and the mistakes that you've made. Encourage them. Pray for them. Older members, you won't just stumble into those relationships. Wouldn't it be cool if... You just, even today after church, went to a younger member of the church and say, hey, I want to take you to lunch. I don't even know your name, but you look younger than I do. <laughs> Can I take you to lunch today? That'd be super cool. And just start to build a relationship and a friendship. Let's not be like Lot and make rash decisions early in life, but more like Abram who walks open-handed, humble, and generous. Now, let's close out this chapter. These last few verses, 14 through 18, the Lord comes and He speaks to Abram again after he and Lot have separated. And these verses are going to sound very familiar to stuff you've already heard in chapter 12. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, or Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. These verses sound familiar because this is the Lord reiterating his promises that he's already made to Abram back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The promise, the focus of this promise is twofold. Abram, you will have many descendants, and Abram, you will inherit this land of Canaan. But where Abram stood Literally, where he stood, the promise of the land seemed unlikely, and the promise of offspring seemed unlikely. He and Sarah were very old and barren, no kids. And he stands here at this intersection. See, Bethel was at this intersection, this major crossroads of north-south roads, east-west roads, through the hill country of Canaan. And also, it was a, a prominent city with big walls, a big fortification. So Abram's literally standing there near the, the city of Bethel, <laughs> surrounded by Canaanites, and the Lord is like, all this is going to be yours. And you're going to have so many kids that you can't even count them. Can you imagine standing and going and standing in someone else's yard, and God like speaks to you and says, this house is going to be yours. <laughs> if you guys show up at my house later today, start doing that. Talk about that. This is all going to be yours. Yeah, I know there's a massive city up there on that hill. I know that these roads with people everywhere. But this is all going to be yours, Abram. Do you believe that? What's going on? What's God doing here? What's he saying to Abram? He's saying, Abram, I'm going to do things in your life that you can't see right now. He's saying, Abram, I can do things in your life that you think are impossible. 
I know you don't have any kids. And I know that's a big city up there on that hill. But I'm going to do this because I said I would. And I'm true to my word. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you also believe? Like we will learn in chapter 15, do you believe God's promises? Do you believe that God can do things that seem impossible in your life? It's been said that prosperity people, prosperity churches believe God for things that He hasn't promised, that reformed people struggle to believe God for things He has. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds? Or is, is that language all over the Psalms just to make you feel better? Do you believe that God can literally help you love your enemies? That He can give you words to speak in the moment of gospel sharing when you don't know what to say? Do you believe that He can give you words? Do you believe that He wants to make you more and more like Christ? Do you believe that He will actually, literally provide everything you need before you even ask Him? He already knows. Do you believe that? We be a church where we are firm in faith in the promises of God. That we believe that God will do the things He's promised to do for us. Not for our glory, but for His. To prove Himself as trustworthy and good. Remember again the boy, the father of the boy with an unclean spirit in the Gospels. The father says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. <laughs> it's kind of laughable. I don't know if we've, we've probably never prayed that way. Lord, if you can do anything, you know. What's wrong with that prayer? And Jesus says, this is what's wrong with Jesus responds, if you can, <laughs> then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. If, if I can provide for you, if I can comfort you, if I can protect you from the evil one, if I can build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, if, Jesus is like, what, if? There's no if here. Everything's possible for those who believe. Meaning Jesus wants us to know that He can and wants to do the impossible. And that's when the man responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because I believe, but I really don't believe. But I, I believe, but I really don't believe. <laughs> Again, this is our life. We're just like Him. And Jesus comes to us and says, all things are possible for one who believes. And sometimes we don't really believe that. Sometimes we struggle to believe that. How can you tell? How can you tell when your faith is wavering? You're like, John, I, it's, it's because of the way I feel right now. Like, this is how I know. I'm just struggling. Well, there are other things, too, I think we can keep our eye on. Sometimes we don't actually believe the promises of God. And as a result, our prayer life dries up. Did you know that prayer is essentially an act of faith? Our Bibles stay closed. Our worship with the people of God is cold and disinterested. 
and nobody knows what's really going on with me. I'm just going through the motions and nobody knows. All these things are signs of a faith that's shriveling up and maybe that's on the verge of giving up. A faith that's growing is seen in a desperation for God. You come to Jesus like that man and you say, Jesus, I believe. Please help my unbelief. And you just keep asking Him for help until He grants it. You open the Scriptures and you read the promises of God and you ask for help to believe them. You get in community. You get in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ and you say, hey, hey brother, hey sister, hey friend, hey bro, this is what, I, what I'm really struggling with. I'm not here to pretend. Pretending has gotten me this far. I'm tired of pretending. I'm really struggling. That's a sign of faith. That's faith. You come to church expectant, ready to hear from God through His Word, ready to worship the King. Not so that you'll, you'll be seen, but so that you can survive. These are God's means of grace to sustain our faith. We neglect these things to our own detriment. And it always shocks me when people say, I'm really struggling with faith, and these things seem absent from their life. Now, of course, the good news is, as I said earlier, God's grace is not nullified or canceled by our shifting sand faith. God's grace is what keeps us in the faith. It's not our faith that keeps us in His grace. So don't hear what I just said uh, as meaning that, man, if I just got to read my Bible more, then I'll feel, feel better. I just got to pray more, just got to worship better, whatever that means. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying those are means of grace. God intends to have His grace flow into your life through those things. If you don't do those things, you're not going to have those channels of grace open to you. God's grace and God's grace alone is what keeps us in the faith. It's not our faith that keeps us in God's grace. Lot chose what he could see, Abram what he could not. Isn't this the walk of faith that we're called to? Isn't this what Jesus has come into your life and said? He's come into your life and He said, Hey, I want you to believe in things that you can't see. I love talking to my kids about how we can't see God, but we know He's real. It's a profound, beautiful question. Jesus is coming into your life say, I, I want you to believe things that you can't see right now. That's what Abram was doing. He's believing God for things he couldn't see. Lot was doing the opposite. And as a result, Lot found himself in danger and isolation, insecurity. Whereas Abram found himself in the middle of God's glorious future for him, even though he couldn't see it. Unlike in Egypt, he chose to believe God and do what was right, and God rewarded him. We never risk forfeiting the blessing of God by doing the right thing. Adam, excuse me, Abram struggled to believe the promises of God, but he did believe them. How do we know that? Well, look at the very end of the chapter and we're done. Chapter 13, verse 18. So Abram 
moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram settles in the land of Canaan. Remember, this land isn't his. It belongs to someone else at the time. But he settles there. And then he worships the Lord. He was faithless at time, no doubt. But when he was, he moved toward God. And God graciously held on to him and renewed his promises to him. Abram's faith was like shifting sand, changed by every wave. His faith was like shifting sand, so he stood on grace. Like Abram, may we also move back towards the altar, so to speak, after we blow it in Egypt. May we, may we go to Jesus and keep going to Jesus despite whatever anguish we feel. Trusting Him to do the impossible. And as we do that, may God's grace grab our hearts so that we become open-handed peacemakers like Abram like the greater Abram, Jesus Christ. By grace and through faith, may God make us an army of open-handed peacemakers who trust God no matter what. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take your word, write it on our hearts, Help us to take from here the things we need to take from here this morning. Help us to be like Abram and run to you instead of away from you. Help us to remember that the cross of Jesus Christ guarantees that all who have faith will never be cast out. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So every time we wander back into Egypt and do stupid things, please bring us to our senses like the prodigal son, back to the altar, back to calling upon the name of the Lord. Thank you for your grace that keeps us. Thank you for your grace that is greater than our sin. Help us, Father. Help us to stay close. Help us to press in and keep pressing forward trusting in your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.